0: <laughs> Marx was
1: actually an accelerationist who wanted the ruling class to have their own government in Brussels <laughs> oh and god. called it cosmopolitan. Oh my god. So things could get worse. What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Lillian and here with me today is Owen, Gill, and Will. Hey guys.
2: Hey. Hey. Hello.
1: So today our episode is about um, Raymond Gois and specifically his essay. It's a small book, long essay called Philosophy and Real Politics. And when I was reading this again, we read the first half together. I was actually reminded of how much this book influenced me in graduate school, and I completely forgot that it did. And I just like kind of felt myself talking back at me, and then I realized I've basically plagiarized. Um, <laughs> and that's not, <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> great
2: opening. <laughs> cra- crazy,
1: crazy to realize this. Um, anyway, but the reason that I think this book was influential on me, just to get to the point, is that I think that there's a series of uh, debates and political philosophy that. I am sympathetic to that he's the, his position in these debates and what he's trying to address. And the first one is a big picture argument against a dominant strain in analytic political philosophy, which basically takes the form of politics as applied ethics. So you figure out what your principles are and then you think, you know, what is, The difference between right and wrong, how ought the world to be in contrast to how the world actually is, and then we're going to pursue social criticism or analysis based on that framework. And I think, and this is just my interpretation, but I think normally the arguments against this way of doing philosophy, so the usual culprit would be Rawls or Neo-Kantian influenced views... Normally, people attack this by saying, you know, it's what's important to do non-ideal theory, like non-ideal theory is the thing that is missing, because if you don't have an idea of what injustice is or what the bad things are or how the world actually is, then ideal theory is useless because, you know, in Marx's, you know, our favorite phrase from Marx, the point is to change it. And So we have this debate about ideal versus non-ideal theory. And if you're listening and that kind of makes sense to you, you've been like sitting around and people normally like the left lefties or left liberals in the crowd will be like, "Uh, ideal theory." And then they'll be like, "Non-ideal theory is so much more important." And so on it goes. But I actually think this is kind of a different view because it kind of shows that that debate, at least in my mind, is kind of a debate that's internal to like a Rawlsian dominated discourse. Mm, and nice. he argues that for an an a version of a way of doing political philosophy that just has a different set of tasks than that whole world of debate altogether. And he calls it realism. Um, So he just argues that in the first place, the surface of what is going on, our real motivations, our motivation, our justifications for why we're doing what we're doing, the constraints that we're under, what we think we're learning or what we're unlearning in the historical process, this all matters. And we're a lot less transparent to ourselves than we think as individuals and as groups, as in societies. But on the other hand, there's much we can find out by looking at what we're actually doing. And I actually wonder if this is kind of a turn back to a positivist way of looking at philosophy. What are people actually doing? What are their patterns Mm -hmm. and why do they say that they're doing what they're doing? And so we want to figure out what the context of action is. And we want to do this in a historically specific and located way. So the level of abstraction that is required is just going to vary in time and space. And then think about politics as a craft or an art of people basically navigating this terrain. And he thinks that this framework, these four things, um, realism, action, historically located analyses, and politics as craft or art, he kind of thinks this is like the introduction to a Leninist model of doing political philosophy. And I think that claim is sort of interesting. We love
3: to see it. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty
1: cool. Yeah. And then, so I'll just close by saying like some of the things that you would do with this kind of analysis, like the kinds of questions that you would answer is um, who is doing what to whom? So he says who, whom. And um, I think that's kind of important because it's about like not just in the abstract, what is power, but who is exercising it and why. You want to build a map of the of people's priorities, preferences, and timing. You want to figure out why people think they should act in one way or another. So questions of legitimacy for political action. And then you want to do ideology critique. And I'll close it there because um, I love the ending of this part of the essay on ideology critique, because this is a much maligned idea that we've discussed at various points on this podcast, but I just don't even know how you can do political philosophy like in an engaged way without doing ideology critique, even though it's very severely fallen out of fashion. And so I would say that not only is this a critique of Neo-Kantian political philosophy, I think the realist perspective is also a critique of much anti-Kantian political philosophy, where instead of looking at rational individuals and trying to figure out what's right to do, we almost exclusively look at what they don't know that they're doing. Um, (laughs) And he's like, that's what I mean, like the surface matters for for analysis. So Mm. yeah, what did you guys make of this one? I like this essay, obviously. So interested to hear what you guys got from it.
3: Yeah, I vibed extremely strongly. I mean, a lot of this just made immediate Great sense to me. I think it like I, I like so many of these things. The interesting synthesis that he's producing of different thinkers I, I, in this first part of the essay is, is wild, right? We have like Lenin asking a very sort of Hobbesian question, right? Like qui bono, right? Like who who mm-hmm. whom is such a cool question because is like look, all political matters are they're actually about concrete people doing determinate things to other actually existing people for reasons, right? So like, okay, I was thinking about it, like it was just going around on Twitter, one of the uh, uh, like classic cases that we get, a gunshot was fired by like a- Gunshot unfolded. A gunshot unfolded, right? And it's like, this is like a completely idealistic and sort of watered down, neutralizing, anti-political way of talking and thinking. Where he, you know, the example he gives is you might encounter a statement like unemployment has risen by 5%. And that just sounds like a completely neutral fact, Mm -hmm. right? Just a a statement about a state of affairs. It's like actually what that means is some people who are in control of economic organizations have terminated the employment of other people, right? Like that is a – that's so to who whom is like a really cool – thing to keep in view, a thing to keep in focus, and tying it with these other sorts of questions of, like, legitimacy and, like, differential evaluation. I don't know. It just, like, spoke to me quite a
0: bit. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love the, uh, the invocation of the Hobbes, like, qui bono question, like, who benefits? Because the question for him is, like, who does what to whom? That's a crucial question of political philosophy, right? We're dealing in the terrain of actions, and in politics, people are acting on other people and with certain determinate benefits. <laughs> I love the way he extends it Cause it applies to cause I think what he wants us to do is also to ask that question qui bono of like particular theoretical frameworks, right? Which mm-hmm. was which was the which was also Hobbes Hobbes' question, right? When that when Hobbes introduced that expression qui bono and the question in Leviathan, he's trying to dispute the idea that ecclesiastic power has a kind of legitimate claim against secular sovereign power, right? So he says like Mm -hmm. these priests and all these people defending ecclesiastic power, it sounds like they're making theoretical arguments with like just theoretical (laughs) stakes. But you should ask yourself, like who stands to benefit from their position being granted authority, right? Or from their position gaining, you know, a a level of social persuasion, right? Um, And I think you could ask the same thing of our, in our context, you could take an example, one that we've touched on a little bit, like Foucaultian thought, I think that being pressed to ask the question like, qui bono, who benefits from this theoretical framework becoming, let's say, a dominant theoretical framework on the left? The charitable reading, right, would say that, well, people that have been marginalized in ways that class oppression, you know, doesn't really fully account for, right? The people that are disabled, people that have been that are queered in various ways by social norms and et cetera, right? But you know, another answer, I maybe a more ideology critique focused answer might say, well. It looks like, in a lot of ways, like the ruling class benefits from this particular framework <laughs> gaining more traction <clears throat> because it prevents certain other kinds of questions from being asked about where real power centers are. If we just think power is diffuse and if it's everywhere, whatever, like that might prevent us from just you know doing good analytical and critical work on actual power central centers and mm-hmm. how it is being exercised in certain ways. I don't. Know, I don't want to go on too long about this, but yeah. I love <laughs> I love posing that qui bono question about our own. Theoretical practice in political philosophy, and even when we're using concepts and frameworks that might not seem to immediately lend themselves to one side of an antagonism or a partisan conflict, you know?
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, like you all, I loved Quibono, but I also love what's implied by him calling this philosophy in real politics, because Mm. I think he also (laughs) tries to show that, you know, so there are two ways of looking at the type of political theory he's critiquing. On the one hand, you could look at it and say, honestly, this is there isn't anything really political about it at all. It is simply Mm. just doing, you know, abstract ethical theory about a world that it may or may not respond to, but does not ne- even need to necessarily, and just working out these logical uh, conclusions. But on the other hand, you could ask, you know, a type of neutral political theory, or political philosophy that takes politics to simply be about ideal ethics is a way of bracketing out real conflicts, real interpretations that are occurring amongst people that it doesn't even do the work of clearing up conceptual confusions and trying to set people's perceptions right. I think that's one way of trying to justify that type of political philosophy. And he's trying to say that it even misunderstands the very essence of political engagement. And it does so, and maybe he doesn't go this far as saying it, in the name of a different type of politics, honestly. A politics that you know, tries to reduce um, contingency as much as possible and make almost politics simply administration. Rather than you the, the the messy work of subjects who have partial, conflicting, confusing beliefs, who are caught in institutions of oppression and domination. And so mm-hmm. I thought it was like even even more interesting that he's like l- throwing down the gauntlet and say saying are you actually going to talk about politics or are we just going mm-hmm. to be doing you know thought <laughs> examples and thought experiments with each other in our nice little Ivy League schools which is funny because he's at Cambridge but he's a real one at Cambridge <laughs> yeah, he's a real like one, yo, yeah. yo we, we we stand this Cambridge
0: <laughs> This is why I dislike the term the political, which I feel like gained fashion in the 90s maybe, but I don't know when it came mm. onto the scene. But the notion of like the political as a stable, trans-historical, ontological field that we can investigate. Like, God, the investigate. 90s were
1: a dark time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, I'm but, telling uh, you. Sorry. It yeah. was backwards. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. So movies mad, were all right. terrible time.
1: Let me call the Kantian admin and if not, let me revive the political.
2: <laughs> the Kantian admin. Like, <laughs> hello, can you get the, the Kingdom of Ends online, please? <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? Oh, and you're gonna you're gonna hate when we do Hannah Rent, I I can tell already. You're not well, gonna like I mean
0: it. let's go back earlier. I mean Schmidt's really the culprit, I think, for that. The concept of like the political, right? He tried to lay down. A, a basically, a kind of listen, I fucks with Schmidt. I think Schmidt's an interesting person to read, but but he tried to lay down, you know, a transcendental conception of like the the political Henna that was obviously very influential for Hannah Arendt. So, yeah, maybe we shouldn't blame the 90s totally. It's, I think Schmidt, I think the 30s the 20s the, and 30s,
2: the Nazis some, are worse. It's the the, Nazis, the, Nazis, the Nazis, Nazis bear some responsibility. Like, <laughs> it is nice to lay it at the Nazis. with <laughs> would have guessed that the Nazis, you know, not the great legacy. Okay, Im- But actually,
3: though, interestingly, I mean, like, I agree, like Schmitt's reification of the political, like, is a problem for sure. I think it's worse in the hands of someone like in Arendt, though, at least in Schmitt's hands, he's actually sensitive to some of these similar sorts of realist commitments that Goyce seems to have about how, like... Hey, actually this is gonna be about interests, competing and buying interests, uh that, like, might be and, yeah. and motivations, right? That like have some things that have something at stake and then the questions that we ask or don't ask or can't formulate properly, uh, has to be understood in light of these competing interests, right? Like um, yeah, that's true. whatever else we wanna say about Schmidt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Not not a, in many in many ways a, a, a good realist political philosopher. And then other stuff as well. (laughs) (laughs) Another another Hobbesian.
2: Yeah. A Hobbesian. So what did you all think about what um, Goist uh, sees as the role of, you know, like conceptual engineering with realist political philosophy? So I take his point to be, we shouldn't get confused that the concepts we use are immediately picking out entities that, you know, exist in the world. So he uses the state and, you know, he, he tries to argue that the state, you know, when it emerged as a concept, it wasn't pointed to something that was already there, but it was a, it was actually a modification of reality and intervention into selecting specific problems and deselecting others. And, you know, and over time, coalesces into what we now call the state. And so I even see him trying to make the argument, you know, he's not trying to say something like, yeah, you know, real politics is messy. Why are you all writing things down and doing theory? I think he's actually trying to, you know, say we should also be clear on what is theory's relationship to reality? You know, how does mm-hmm. it modify reality? but it's not a direct description of what is happening. And I thought that that was you know, that was like a really interesting move cuz he he could have gone the route of being like we don't need any sort of theoretical inv- interventions. It's all praxis. But that's not where he goes. He wants right. to show that the type of thought you generate is going to have impacts on reality. And so maybe you're fooling yourself if you're thinking, "Hey, I just run algorithms, man. I just, you <laughs> know, I just do ideals, man. And so he's trying to call that attention to attention as well. I mean, that is one thing that I do want to question a little bit, because there are
0: points in reading Goyce where I'm thinking that it sounds a lot like, and maybe this is what has to happen, I'm not a priori opposed to it, but it sounds at times like we're talking about the self-abolition of of philosophy, as, as, in, insofar as, as political philosophy has something distinct to offer. Because he's always you know, I'll come back to your example to state in a second, but he's always insisting on further particularization, right? Like mm-hmm. there are no transhistorical norm, like political norms that we can sit around and cultivate. There are no, you know, even the, the kinds of values and the concepts that we use to critique social reality don't apply necessarily from one part of a society to another, from one time or historical epoch to another, etc. right? Mm-hmm. So you get to this level of the need for particularization, but philosophy isn't super good at particularization. You know what I mean? And like, do you know what I mean? And, and like, even the examples, I mean, I don't even know if that's what it has, that's what it's best resources or what what, it, what, what it's best offering is to, um, to, to theory is that that level of particularization. So I don't know, I, this is open an open question for me because it was one, it's just one thing that made me pause and wonder like, okay, well, I can think of lots of ways historically where concepts like the state, right. Have, have been incredibly important, but, in some ways, you know, the state was already forming when the social contract, okay, this is going to be interesting, I guess, like when the social contract gets articulated by by early modern thinkers, it's not that the social contract brings the state, those writings bring the state into existence, nor is it the right. case that there are mere reaction. I don't know, I guess there's some kind of dialectical relationship happening between, between the practical world and theory at that point. Um, but I don't know, I'm just curious what you guys think about the limits to philosophy when you demand that you historically when it has to be so historically rooted
3: yeah that's true but at the same time he's also pretty clear that like generalization is powerful as well like i mean he like there there are like moments when he talks about like conceptual innovation having this like generalizing function i mean which i i think i agree with you that like philosophy is pretty bad at getting as particular as he he wants it to be i mean so much of the text is like a occasionally indirect occasionally extremely direct just like dunk after dunk on ideal theory right Mm -hmm. just like and I was almost shocked but maybe I shouldn't have been that like he doesn't name oh he doesn't like name Rawls yeah does he name does he name Rawls at all
0: like
3: uh because it feels like he it felt to me and maybe this is just because like I've been reading and teaching him recently it just like felt like We were just like trashing like Rawlsian political philosophy.
1: See, that's what I think is not happening. I mean, we could ask him. Maybe we should send him a get in his DM, send him an email, and see what he says. But um, slide in. Yeah, but like I think he says neo-Kantianism kind of specifically because that's broader than Rawls. Like that's also that's the anglophone and the the German speaking academic world, basically. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you think about Habermas, Reiner Forst, I mean, we're talking about like a big Kantian Mm. turn that Mm. is not reducible to to Rawls. So I think that that's why it's kind of more generalizable than the ideal theory debate.
2: So... I was just going going to ask. So, you know, maybe we can, again, kind of figure out why did he write this text? So I'm all for dunking and all of that. And I'm all for dunking on Neo Kantians, especially. But, you know, so (laughs) what actually does he think the relationship between philosophy and real politics should be, though? So I get describing the shortcomings of, you know, sort of ideal, the non-ideal, non-ideal couplet, Um, the lack of understanding of how politics, you know, um, actually articulates, actually crystallizes. But I was wondering if we could get clear on what the positive part of this project is, because I've increasingly become interested in, in political realism and all of that, and I know that there's a certain strain of political realism where they don't want to depend on moral argumentation or moral norms, and yet... I get the sense that there is an ought in Goyce's project, and so what should philosophy be doing? And maybe this you know, can take us to some of what he was doing with ideology critique, because I think he does have a positive role for philosophy, but I'm not quite clear on, on what it is. Well, one of the things I think makes his realism sophisticated
0: is that part of the field of the real for him, of what is real for him, are values and concepts, right? Mm. Like, they have... That's why he talks about legitimation for a while. Like Legitimation isn't just, it's not just an ideological epiphenomenon, right? There's a real task involved in understanding and critiquing what ideas and values are compelling to people, actually, mo- actually motivating to people um, at a given moment. And I guess maybe that's where philosophy's task lies, right? It lies in, in that domain, but not as, again, you don't want, you don't want to inflate philosophy's role because... He, he seems to he seems to be trying to balance like not inflating philosophy while not obliterating it. So maybe my my point about the self abolition isn't totally fair.
3: Yeah, I mean like he talks like continuously, and this is why I think he's drawn to ideology critique, unfashionable though it might be, right? Because he recognizes that like there's a real effectivity in the political register, so in the construction of social reality, for ideas, beliefs, uh, you know. These concepts of what counts as legitimate things that are desirable. When, and he completely brackets whether or not any of them are quote unquote correct, mm-hmm. right? Like they, it has nothing to do with that at all, right? Like he says things like, hey, like, yeah, people sometimes are confused about what even they want. And if you ask them what they want, they're gonna spit out a bunch of contradictory nonsense. And that plays a role in determining the things they're going to do and how they participate in constructing social and political reality, right? Like, and so, like a realist political philosophy has to take that seriously. This can't—you cannot just be like, "Well, if everyone was rational, they'd." Be, well, who are you talking about? Those people don't exist. They're just not real, mm-hmm. right? Real people are the real people are these contradictory, non-self-transparent, conflicted, invested, partisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes confused sometimes clear sometimes aware sometimes like all way off the mark working together to attain specific goals Mm -hmm. uh and against one another sometimes like and and realist thinking has to sorry get down into that mud (laughs) and like try to like look around and be like "Where, where are we actually who's saying what why like what do we actually what do people actually think so like Toward the end, what he's talking about, like the relationship between political philosophy or political theory, and he is explicit about like, I'm equivocating between the two. What's the relationship between political philosophy or political theory and ideology? He basically seems to suggest, and maybe you can tell me if, if I've got this right, that there's like two different modes of relating, right? One of them is like dissolving ideological formations, and the other is like playing a role in dissimulating them, perpetuating them, right? Proposing them. Proposing them, yeah, um, uh, or ingratiating them. I mean, I was thinking before, Owen, like you were bringing up the example of like a Foucauldianism, like that sort of does, I think, fit into that second model in as much as it like kind of intentionally takes our attention away from certain questions pertaining to class in ways that I think might be, like you said, then we can ask a qui bono question, right? So like it is to do with like how political theory, political thinking. We can try to do conceptual innovation. I really wish there was more of a roadmap there because like, it's really difficult. But sometimes it's about like what questions you draw attention to, what you allow to remain as presupposed as natural yeah. or what you call into question.
0: What stood out to me about that, though, is that if I try to think of examples, so he gives the one example of the concept of the state. But if I try to think of other examples, and I can think of some, right, where concepts have this kind of way of concentrating a problem in the practical field, this way of like mm-hmm. orienting action, the first things that come to my mind are not concepts that are done, that are like generated and necessarily discussed even in like political philosophy. So I think of like MLK Jr's concept of like the white moderate, right? Which allows to like concentrate mm-hmm. a, a, under this particular figure, a whole set of social and political forces that that were not maybe mm-hmm. able to be, They're not able to be critiqued in the same way, right? When he's able to show that, look, it's not the Klansman, right? It's this figure Mm -hmm. of the white moderate. And then he fills in the white moderate with with a conceptual field that surrounds it, right? Which is things like people that, you know, the people that privilege order over justice, right? People Mm -hmm. that are always talking about things going slow enough or whatever, right? Or I think of, as another example, the Black Panther Party and the naming of, like, the figure of the pig, the concept of the pig. And the concept of the pig orients the practical field. That's a concept, right, that, that... that orients the practical field, it names a problem, and it is able to also motivate I don't know. It has a certain. You just me, though. Those aren't concepts that are developed in political philosophy, though. Those are like No, theoretic- you don't have
2: Rawls talking about, <laughs> no, and, exactly. and, you know, behind the veil, we have to just think about if you're going to be a pig or not. No, yeah, exactly. But like, but those
0: are, not no, to be fair, those are theoretically inflected pr- political practitioners, right? MLK Jr. and like the Panthers, Marxist Leninists, you know, like, so it's not to say that they're. That theory, I'm just trying to think through it because it's not that theory is not a part of it. I just, yeah. again, I come back to this question of, I just want to know, I have a better sense of like, well, what in political philosophy then in these fucking articles? Like, and these books, yeah. like, are we, are, are we supposed to be doing to be faithful to what I think are fantastic premises for, you know, a realist political theory?
2: So here, here's some here's something that you know as you were talking you know one I actually think that was a fantastic example of MLK and the white moderate because what I got from that is well maybe you know the relationship of philosophy to real politics is also to understand that politics is always going to be a movement of selecting and deselecting what you take to be salient if you have an uh, an idea mm-hmm. of politics in which it grasps every single problem at every single scale at the at the exact same moment that sounds like a, a fantasy politics and so you know to have even the fantasy of a philosophical theory that can completely grasp the political all of its you know, its requirements its needs the values and ideas Deals it should have. Well, maybe Goyce's critique would be that that isn't actually engaging what politics actually does, which is it is this you know foregrounding and backgrounding, and that those are inevitable trade-offs that will happen. But also there can be really mm-hmm. good effects. I think you know when when you said the white moderate example, you know I thought yeah all of a sudden you know MLK shifts the field. You know he shifts your orientation to you know the the battle we're fighting isn't against this explicit racist. It makes mm-hmm. apparent um, a. <laughs> Mm-hmm. field of, of power and a, a stricture on um, uh, political movements that hadn't had been either inchoate or simply implicit. Yeah, but right, that nice means, yeah. you know, when you do that, you know, obviously, MLK, if you ask him, he wouldn't be like, you I'm cool with the Klan, but he is backgrounding <laughs> them. And so that mm-hmm. isn't what we are focusing on now. And so mm-hmm. maybe this constant oscillation of what are we focusing on? What are we seeing and being self-conscious that we are creating these, you know, lenses to view and focus on specific issues.
3: Yeah, I thought that, like, one of the things that he said that I thought was really striking was that the the process of conceptual innovation or, like, you know, these moments where, like, a new concept comes to light and takes – he talks about them, like, putting down roots, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes they, like, put down roots or take hold, and sometimes they don't. And one of the questions for political theory is, like, trying to look at these cases – And sort of try to figure out why sometimes they do and sometimes they don't take hold. Um, But like, it's not just naming something that already exists. It's also not just like naming something that you want to be and you're trying to like call it into existence. It's sort of like entering into an entire already normatively laden theoretical space, right? And like surveying it from a particular perspective so that you know it's there's oughts built into
0: that's important uh
3: each of these conceptual innovations like no matter what like so in the case of like the white moderate like there is there is an ought there right that is like one ought to combat the white moderates recalcitrance in the face of progressive like anti-racist movement right like that's the
0: concept of the pig right it creates a friend it creates a friend enemy distinction against the police
3: Yeah, yeah yeah exactly right and so like these are both really interesting features of this kind of work of political theory that he's describing, right? Like that it is the conceptual work of of constructing adequate ways of getting a grip on how social reality is parsed in a normative way. And and then this other question of like, when does that work and why, right? Because sometimes it does and sometimes it does not, right? And the example that he gives of it not and that could be for different reasons, right? Sometimes it's because of the conceptual deficiencies. The, the, the example he gives there is like the third way. Oh, yeah. He's like, well, that just wasn't, oh, new that lab- just like new wasn't a thing.
0: Yeah. yeah, they're trying to come up with yeah, a new concept. He's like, that's
3: just not real. <laughs> so He
0: says it instead instead of being a concept, new labor was just a slogan.
3: Just a slogan, right? And sometimes people name things that they think are concepts, but they're slogans. Sometimes it's because it's just not attractive enough or not plausible. And sometimes it's just not even clear at all. Right. And so like, there's like a lot of work actually for political philosophy to do here, trying to sort of diagnose the moment. Mm-hmm. That was the, uh, yeah, this is the other thing. Maybe I'm going to shut up, but I like the other thing that I was fascinated by was like, he goes to Lenin for the idea of like the, the moment, like the conjuncture, yeah. the propitious right? like the, moment, the, the, yeah. the, the nows. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I, f- I feel like there's, um, the new labor thing is, is sparking an idea for me because, What I wanted to say, and the reason that he uses Lenin, is it's almost like Lenin is somebody who is just from a different space and time where the kind of political thinking that Goyce Mm. is interested in is not alien. Mm. And there's a sense in which Lenin helps us understand our own deficiencies. So like when we were talking about in the Sartre episode that we did and I suggested that like the way that we do political philosophy now is a symptom of a particular kind of institutionalized specialization such that we even have to ask the kinds of questions that we're asking. And previous generations of people wouldn't have had to ask this question this ideal -ideal non-ideal theory thing because they didn't live in a context in which that kind of distinction even made Mm -hmm. sense like what Mm -hmm. philosophy was for was understood to be something different likewise with lenin what politics was was something different to him and it's something that at least goy seems to think this part of lenin you can try to bring back which is that like you just have to assume that the people you're dealing with your object of study is not the kind of thing that you project on it. And this is something that, like, in theory, I mean, and this is something that I think people, at least on the political left, are starting to learn again that is kind of a really painful learning process from, like, the Corbyn campaigns or the Bernie campaigns that when you go out and you talk to people it's not the case that they look at the world and then what you see reflected mm-hmm. back at you is what you <laughs> learned in your university classroom. People don't have completely systematic ideas. Their unconscious does not say the things that your psychoanalysis class on social issues <laughs> told you that it would say. Unless you reach for that, like you can, you, oh, they'll send you a little signal and you'll be like, aha, that's it, that confirms my worldview. Um, I mean-
2: that's what's great with Freudian psychoanalysis. Whatever happens, just like, right. I've gotten a theory for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so like you can kind of, and he's like, maybe there's a sense of of wonder and problem solving that needs to be revived here, that this distinction between political theory and philosophy is itself mm-hmm. ideological and is obscuring what we're supposed to be Doing And that can only happen in a historical period that is distinctly not politically engaged in the ways that someone like Lenin or anyone in that milieu would have, uh, like they would have Mm -hmm. looked at our world and been like, what are you doing? Literally, what are you doing? How
2: is this political philosophy? I could I could imagine that because as soon as you were talking you know, while you were talking Lily I just kept thinking it isn't even that you know, they weren't thinking in terms of ideal non-ideal mm-hmm. theory like did they even have that language like you know, when oh. did that you know um, a linguistic concept enter into a milieu and this kind of shows you the 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 power of the effectivity of concepts when they um, uh, articulate with institutions that it shapes a whole form of life in normative milieu where this is a central salient obviously pertinent question where in a different historical period it it would be like it seems like you created a problem to solve that wasn't there in the first place and so you know I don't mean you know sometimes I always worry about you know dunking too much but sometimes you know I, I look at some political philosophy and I ask how is this not just us talking to each other I know at the end of every paper is supposed to say, and here is actually the real-world payoff of everything I did. And at a certain point, I'm just mm. – I'm not convinced. And I am not convinced that, like, what you are doing is the same as you know, the political uh-huh. speech act of, like, MLK or Marx or Lenin. Not to, like, you know, like you know, deify mm. them, but you cannot tell me that that is the same. And you should be able to explain why that, that is different. And so it, it, it's actually fascinating that it also allows us to reflect on what it is we've been doing and you know, to see how we have gotten ourselves wrong. We have you know, been projecting onto ourselves. Never mind you projected onto other people and it turns out if you actually meet them, they don't think the way you said that they do. But maybe we don't even <laughs> think the way that we think we do that we assume that we are you know, the standard bearers, the ones who are going to change culture and all of that. And really what we are doing is just becoming increasingly more and more irrelevant. And we should ask how and why that is, which you know, leads me to like, you know, what you know, Gil said, I think, a really important thing for political philosophy to do is also to ask why failures happened, why certain concepts mm-hmm. didn't take root, why yeah. they failed like to labor. do the work. Like, like new labor, like you know, maybe a type of psychoanalysis, but we are going to do a psychoanalysis episode at some point, so I want to hold off on our <laughs> dunking on that. Let's figure out if it fails. But I think that's like a, a really a, a important question to ask because it allows you to you know, become clearer on the forces that animate the world in which you live. And so sometimes I worry that a type of leftist thinking is just constantly trying to shove a square block into a circle hole and just mean like, mm-hmm. I guess we didn't believe hard enough. And <laughs> yeah, and always coming up with cope reasons why the world that you think should be here is not here. And it's like, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe maybe your priors are wrong. Not to, not to go all ALA philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> Check your priors.
1: <laughs> One of these premises is
2: false yeah gotta be right that's gotta For be <laughs> One of is the of the this is in fact not a sound argument <laughs> yeah i mean like this is
3: interesting so like i completely buy now i'm convinced by both you will, will and lillian that thinking about this as like a, a specifically a critique of quote unquote ideal theory is and in part missing the point because like part of what he's trying to do is to like shake up the presupposition that that's even like the right distinction but it is also true i think that like some of the ways in which political philosophy as currently institutionalized and formalized goes about trying to do the work that it does uh is just like untenably idealist mm-hmm. just re- kind of kind of wild like that it would even come to this right to sort of repeat what you were just saying like are you kidding me right like are you serious you're going to <laughs> how like, long
2: are we gonna let this go on
3: <laughs> yeah like are you are you for real why didn't ta-
1: someone stop this train why <laughs> did someone
3: going? stop this we're trying to talk about like power and it's like all right well let's like Let's like just sit around and just imagine what like power is metaphysically,
2: like absent historical circumstances and like th- what do you mean ta- metaphysically. Let's wonder about the linguistic definitions of these words that we are yes. using. Yeah, 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 let's try to clarify
3: the, the 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 words that we use to ourselves, so as to be able to make maximally rational. By which we mean utilitarian, min-maxing. Like, known. what are you talking about? Like, this is bananas. So, who's Who benefit? Who, from yeah, whose well, benefit? Yeah, who's, benefit is this? For whom is it yeah. good that this is what "quote unquote" political philosophers I do? I mean, I
2: I guess yo, it. It's good for um, getting tenure. I mean, like that's that facts. Be, that's like, facts. Like, and, and you know what? Anyone listening to this, don't you dare at me. Don't you dare deny that's not good for tenure. Get out of here with that. Come on now.
3: So I mentioned before that, like, you know, uh, I was surprised he doesn't name Rawls, but he does name Habermas quite often. I was curious what you all thought of that. Like, Habermas seems to be his, like, go-to example of the sort of non-realist uh, approach to political philosophy that he's got a lot of problems with. I, I was I wondering what you all thought about he that. He went
2: after the self-proclaimed last living Marxist. <laughs> like how 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 could you <laughs> I do forgot that? about that claim? That that's, that's so your blow. It's, it's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Does he really say that? I didn't know <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah that's a real thing Habermas said. This is why you know I'm always gonna be stand by Habermas. I mean, I guess... <laughs> Wait,
1: when did he say that? <laughs>
2: yeah, that's bananas. I, I swear he said it. I it, it must Maybe it was like 30 years ago. I believe you. When you know, he was in a different period, but I swear um, a theory of community of action was <laughs> already in a different out. place in his he was life. was in a different yeah. place in his life, but I think volume one of the theory of community of action was out. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if I'm wrong, sorry, Habermas, I didn't mean to slander you. But <laughs> Marx
1: was actually an accelerationist who wanted the ruling class to have their own government in Brussels oh my and God. called it cosmopolitan. Oh my God, so things could get worse and worse in Europe after two world it's wars. Marxism
2: you know you you really got to read beneath the, uh, the text and between the lines I mean, I've read some some Hoppermast, and I think you know, he's hard on the guy, but uh, it's hard for me to understand. <laughs> how he's wrong. I mean, you know, especially in you know, more you know, later Habermas and all of that. And so it seems to me that Goyce's you know, issue with Habermas is you know, around one of his, uh, Habermas's concepts around the ideal speech situation. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe Iglesias doesn't put it this way, you know, what he he doesn't like in a type of Habermasian approach is even the uh, idea that there could be some type of neutral space in which, you know, we can imagine if we had all the time in the world, theoretically, this is how we'd work through Mm -hmm. all of these issues. And he thinks, again, (laughs) this mischaracterizes that politics is finite. It is pressed for time. It is temporally bounded. And to a. Is pressed for time, yeah, and pressed. that's what makes it. Yeah, inv- yeah, yeah. It essentially yeah. that's not a contingent yeah. attribute of politics, a, a sort of unfortunate nice. degradation, a deformation of what it ideally ought to be. Even if, like Habermas would never say, like the ideal speech situation ever comes. I don't think he. I don't think he does that. Like you, know. um, I think he's careful enough not to say that. But it's still to configure these as malformations, this uh, time bound form of politics as as uh, distortions. And Goist wants to say it's not distortion. Mm. That is politics, though. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's like a fundamental condition, right? Like, it it, sometimes, he, he says at one point, which is really nice, that like politics is neither, or maybe political theory isn't found either in those cases where one is like just fully kind of captured by like the obvious desirability of a particular outcome, right? So that like, you know, your action just sort of follows as a matter of obvious course. Nor in those moments where like you have, quote, all the time in the world to like sit around and figure. It's, it is these moments of constrained decision, of choice, of needing to try to prioritize or select. And this is why I like language you were using well before about like how maybe then like explicitly the work of political philosophy is like selection, deselection. Right. Like that's that's like and that's and that is always time bound. You know, we're, we are pressed for time the moment is now right so a question should be something like well what's what's appropriate now and why right like it's it's always why this here i never i never do this but like this is like a a, a deleuze thing for me I, I never talk about on the pod how much i'm indebted to deleuze but um uh, like he says at some point something like yeah the the questions change substantially when you're no longer asking them in this sort of classical mode of metaphysics that we inherit from Plato, where the question is like, what is X, right? What is virtue? What is justice? What is the good? When instead you start asking these questions like, why this now, right? Why this thing here, Mm -hmm. right? Like those are- Why this
0: conception of the good now, Mm -hmm.
3: yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that might be like a kind of core feature of this sort of more realist approach.
1: I mean, so here's an example of like why I think I mean, I don't know if this is a helpful example, but there's this debate that, like, I'm kind of involved in about the nature of domination under capitalism. Like, what is it? And some people think that the best way to describe, actually most people, I would say, think the best way to describe domination is as impersonal, right? Because the market Mm -hmm. affects us basically statistically and impersonally. And there's the whole alienation critique this is wildly out kind of outside of the control of any individual. and then you know Marx says things about capitalists being the persona of capital, you know, so capital is itself the subject and like this is a, just a classical way of talking about domination. And like I've asked myself like do I think that's fundamentally wrong? And the answer is, not really. Like, I, I think that that is one way of talking about domination. But I also think that, like, that isn't what's needed right now. Like, people already feel powerless enough. And hmm. telling people that they're dominated impersonally just to me seems, what are we going to do about that? You know? Hmm. And so I'm, I'm obsessed with t- why capitalists actually do what they do. And why they as individuals and as a group do things that arbitrarily fuck people up and like make life miserable for people that like displace them, that throw them away, that like what, what are they actually doing? Because I think if you can ask, answer the question of why they are doing what they're doing, then you can say something more meaningful about how to challenge that, them. Mm -hmm. and make them do something else. Mm -hmm. And so like, I, to me, that's the kind of thing, like when that that kind of question, like who, whom, or ideology critique, it's like, you ask yourself, and whether people agree with that, I don't know. But I ask myself, what is, you can, you can repeat that domination is impersonal until you're blue in the face, and it is not Mm going to get anyone to see this problem any differently, because they can't do anything about that. And Mm -hmm. so maybe that's not what is required at this time, and the intervention that—I mean—that's just what I think. So, like, I just imagine that that's at least what I would kind of hope is like—that's the kind of move that because it's—it's not like I'm saying something without normative justification, and it's not even that I'm saying there's a different way—a different way of answering the question—is impossible. I'm just saying that this is a better way of making sense of this right now for these historical reasons. Mm. If that, and I think that, to me, that's like a little bit more, like a realist motivation for doing something like that.
2: I wonder, and, you know, uh, I'm going to do something I hate when when my undergraduates do. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. So, I'm wondering if there is a a type of limitation that you know the political philosopher, whomever they are, um, who we've been dunking on, might respond, and they might say something like all of this is fair enough but what if we take it that the task of political philosophy is to give us some first order values or norms to guide us to you know where or what configuration society we we would we want Their critique might be being so enmeshed in the real, you know, that you, how do you decide between better and worse configurations of society, except by pure arbitrary caprice or pure um, bias? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I mean, I don't think, you know, guys is, you know, um, like caught in this trap, but I think it's a question worth raising, because it seems to me he dethrones philosophy from being a place of sort of first order values or the norms, if you will, and it is -hmm. is quite a bit more, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, parasitical. It is dependent on the situation in which it finds itself in, and I can imagine some political philosophers, and again, we can immediately tag them and say, so you're not interested in politics, but want some independence. From how things are, some autonomy from how things are, in order to reflect and not be you know caught up in simply the circumscription of what is. Goyce kind of responds to this, and when one of my favorite quotes, where he talks about we shouldn't hamstring ourselves with uh, you know the Kantian baggage of you know we necessarily can't imagine something, so it's a uh, beyond our limits. And he has this really funny line where he says, you know, sometimes when you you try to like explain someone something to someone, they can't imagine you Yes, I can see that. Um, let me explain further. Or yes, I can see you can't imagine that. You poor thing. I don't know what's wrong with you. And so <laughs> yeah, I need some help. I, <laughs> let's get you some help. But you know, I, I, I link that because you, <laughs> Goyce clearly doesn't think that you, know, um, his realism traps you in you know, simply affirming the status quo of now. And, like, you know, he seems to want to argue that political philosophy actually operates as a way of, you know, authenticating or trapping itself in the status quo. But I'm wondering, based on what we've said, you know, what is our way out of that, you know, supposed political philosopher who's like, so you've given up on grounding any values and you're simply reactive?
1: I think that's a really good question. I also think grounding values and being simply reactive are two different problems. Like, okay. there's... Hmm. Um, so think about a debate about merit, like in the Rawlsian tradition, that you need to no, not merit, fair equality of opportunity. You need like fair equality of opportunity. That's a part of the basic set of uh, two principles of justice. It's part of the second one, as far as I understand. Um, and in a, an ideal society, there would be fair equality of opportunity. We can talk about why that's so, and you can talk about why we don't have it now. There's and and. I might actually agree that like in a society in which that was a historical possibility to have fair quality of opportunity, I can fuck with that. I'm like, but that might be a dope part of my way of thinking about justice Mm. under different rules. But Mm -hmm. that might in fact be, you know, and this is the ideology critique or the unmasking part of the program, which is like, so that could be cool. Like that's a a value you can ground but what I'm, what you have to react to is the fact that, like, that is in this context in which that's not historically possible. So that's not a – that it's mm. a value you can justify normatively. But, like, you choosing to focus on it like this is also implicitly justifying this other thing. <laughs> and, like, and maybe that's domination. So the status quo justification might just go in the other direction, which doesn't mean that – those norms aren't viable some way, somehow.
0: Yeah. I mean, the concept of democracy is another example in which like there might, because it seems to be one of the things he's saying is that there there are some conjunctures in which valorizing democracy can play like a, a critical role in projects of emancipation and other instances in which like, and we could have we could discuss whether we, this is one of those historical moments now, or other moments in which it's kind of been defanged. It's not able to currently pry itself away from its status as ideological legitimation mm-hmm. of you know the existing political order.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I like what you're saying there, um, because also you know what that makes me me also think is that you know there's sometimes this way of speaking politically that you know, if we don't hold firm to Quasi eternal values were absolutely lost, but it also seems <laughs> to run in the exact opposite direction. That that hanging on to values or continuing to you know press concepts mm. that clearly aren't hooking into reality, that aren't you know, either mm-hmm. shaping it or illuminating it in ways that um, open the the path to you know um, new forms of action. You know concepts like the third way that increasingly it seems like people are like, um, okay, that's a nice <laughs> slogan, or people actually. You know, uh, kind of sense that you only mean it as a slogan, then there needs to be some sort of lever that can react upon a uh, political philosophy or political theory and say, we need to shift gears. You know, what are the inbuilt mechanisms for you know, a way of thinking to figure out this is not working? And no, I don't think the answer is peer review so you know, <laughs> <laughs> but i'm stuck i'm but I'm like stuck on your question though will like uh
3: i'm like thinking about like the the objection that like a more idealistically minded philosopher would say in response to this, like surely the objection would run, a goist or a realist political philosopher more broadly does in fact have some kind of metanormative commitments right Mm -hmm. like and even and and i'm noticing the way in which like that's sneaking back into the accounts that you all have just Mm -hmm. been giving like where things like emancipation right uh uh, Mm -hmm. like for oh, oh for emancipatory projects or you know liberatory or you know words like this like those imply, again, Deletarian. a fully normatively laden conceptual terrain in which there are already commitments staked out, right? Like if, if you think mm. that that's good, it's because you think emancipation's good. That's okay. Own it. Right. Like, but mm-hmm. that's different that, but this is like, you know, the question is like, you know, wh- why though, you know, not to just be difficult, but like if this you know, realist account of like politics is, uh, is about like trying to ask the question of, you know, why this value now, maybe this is where we should start asking ourselves questions. Like, again, and not just to be difficult, but like, <laughs> why is emancipation a good thing? Actually, why are we all, why are we all on board with that? Maybe that's something that, you know, deser- that. that's the sort of worry that I start to have when I, when I hear that objection you were raising properly.
0: Well my worries there though is that we'd end up down a Nietzschean a Nietzschean uh road in which we start you know, Nietzsche quite loves those questions like why peace? Why not rather right, right. war? Right? And
1: <laughs> want, and, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
1: get get it, Nietzsche. <laughs> In these, uh, yeah. got got
2: yeah. <laughs> Why not? I mean, fair question. It, it, fair question. Yes, no, we know. Uh, Owen is you're know, probably closer to the side of maybe we should blow up some pipelines. I don't know. I like, I'm just asking I'm questions. I'm just asking questions. I'm
1: just asking. I mean, voting, <laughs>
2: voting is an option too. Voting is <laughs> also an
3: option. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, right. Let me wait. wait, wait hold on. Let me option, write that yeah. down. You. Can <laughs> vote. All right.
2: That's you hadn't period. thought about that before until Owen gave you that I've concept. I've never thought about that before. You are welcome. But thank you. you know, it solid. is a scary question, but I I tend to think that you know a reasonable answer that still adheres to the the realism is that this question should remain uncomfortable insofar as we have to continue to furnish arguments for why this. Um, concept or this value now rather than assuming it's a settled affair but Mm -hmm, also with the self-consciousness that you are making an intervention and if it is the case that in realist politics agents can be confused they can be partial they can be misled why in the world would you think that that doesn't go for you too and maybe that's partially (laughs) sometimes I feel myself getting animated about political philosophy because I'm like oh so you all somehow escaped ideology though that's that's incredible (laughs) That is incredible. I love that. That sounds for you. cool. And so, <laughs> yeah, I love you that. Know, to, so maybe you know, um, it, it, it forces us to continue to reckon with our partiality, not in a way foregoing truth, because you know I think all of us are actually kind of okay with capital T truth.
1: Pro truth. Pro truth Pro truth. Pro
2: truth yes. um,
3: gang rise up.
2: But <laughs> you are also not guaranteed to be the one person who has all of it. You know, no one ordains you in that. And so it seems to me it has to be a question you constantly return to. And the final reason that you have to return to it is things like emancipation. You know, it also forces you to ask, is that a universally shared value, especially with the content you're attaching to it? Mm -hmm. Is that what Mm -hmm. we all think? And we and I see I was about to do it. We all love using we. And sometimes <laughs> that, that we does a lot of work that might be, you know, kind of denial or um, a flight from reality and actually tarrying with its, you know, um, tensions rather than, you know, saying, well, op- for obviously we are all on Obvious. board with this yeah. thing called emancipation or liberation. You have to make, make the claim. You have to make the argument. You have to stake it into um, mm-hmm. an already normatively laden field.
1: So, I guess I just think that I'll just kind of rephrase what I said that I'm not sure that even having like a meta normative picture has to be idealist to begin mm. with. Like, right, nice. Mm. I think what I said when like there are lots of values that can be justified in ways that like might fit a meta normative framing for what people think is just and good. I think what Goyce is pointing out is that the leap from that to basically anything else is like, what are you going to do now? You know, so I might have mm. such a justification, but the the norms that become relevant, like assuming that I am one of those people that just like has a system and I am transparent to myself and I have all my views and commitments sorted, like what I choose to emphasize in any particular situation has to differ based on that situation and there's a choice on what I spend my time doing so you can tell me yes like Lillian you already have a way of thinking about the world that's implicit and you haven't fessed up to it but then like what if I do fest up to it like what's your point then like does that mean that you're gonna <laughs> mm-hmm. change like do you have better norms to emphasize in this context than than I do and 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 why, Mm. you know, so I guess I just don't think that the realist move is that high stakes and that more, um, meta framing sense. Like I think you could have one and still be a realist. I think the problem is in the reverse move, which is like, I have this framing and I am just going to impose it on the world and not ask myself what I am Mm -hmm. making, highlighting or Mm de-emphasizing or whatever Mm
0: -hmm. I mean yeah the anti-realist position might be then like to have no curiosity about how the kind of meta normative frameworks with which you're working are rooted in and Uh responsive to and act in the world right Mm -hmm. because
1: otherwise you're not going to be able to like say whether or not you still agree with that framing which is why it all gets so stuck like if you have a say you have a meta normative framework and say it's even meta ethical I don't know and then you start you don't need to look at the world, then you're just only going to continue to confirm that in a way that's <laughs> internal to your arguments. And you're never going to even find out if you really agree with that metanormative framing. Because sometimes we engage <clears throat> in politics and then you're like, hmm, the background, what's in the background here is not right to me anymore. And
2: yeah. yeah, the meta normative mm-hmm. framework has to, you know, it has to, you know, be brought to to bear on itself. I'm, I'm writing something up right now, and you know, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but you know, it's you know me responding to my imagined critics on Utopia. Uh, but you know what Utopia uh, allows is you know, making clear the meta frameworks we already have and making them available. Mm-hmm. For conceptual mediation, argumentation. But if you don't, if you assume that you got it scot free, then you'll never have to question it. It will all just remain internal, and thus outside the the tensions and cleavages of real politics.
3: Yeah, I mean, if not, uh, whatever else is true about political philosophy, it can't just be self confirmation, right? And like so much of Goise's like intervention here throughout is just being like, here's what it would take to be self-critical, which you gotta, you gotta do it. I'm sorry. You really need to be self-critical.
1: All right. Well, that does it for us today. I think Um, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Rivka, Akshay Rangamani, Wendy, David Howell, Brian Kapski, Robert Freudenthal, Sylvie Primus, Aaron Dowdy, Brad Pasinek, Sophie Wittlinger, Sean Fremstad, Lawrence Shervington, Scott, Brian, Xylem Graf, mm-hmm, Louise Wise, Billy Godfrey, and Ben Boucher. Thank you all very much. Um, if you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. Follow us on Twitter at left of Phil and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app, please. With that, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.
3: Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Thank you.